Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. I don't feel right in my, my day-to-day life unless I have at least one or two trips booked in the calendar in the future, right? It's that having something to look forward to, I think, and having it in, the, in your schedule. If that's you, if you need some ideas for a couple trips to put on your calendar, then look no further than this episode. That was Matt Berna, by the way, president of North America for Intrepid Travel. He's going to share the top five countries for solo travel. And this is no ordinary top five list. You'll hear why in this episode. And one of the things we discuss, which is a reminder for everyone, that solo travel does not mean single. There are plenty of people out there with spouses or partners who still love and value solo travel. I'm one of them. Maybe that's you too. So if you're looking for some ideas for some trips, you're in for a treat. We'll also discuss plenty of other topics along the way. For example, how to break into the travel industry and get paid to travel as a tour guide. Matt and I have both been guides, so we swap some stories here and give you a little behind-the-curtains peek of what it's like to be a tour guide, why it's so rewarding and demanding, and advice on working in the travel industry in general, what a B Corporation is, why you should know about it and why it's important, why to consider group tours even if you are an independent traveler, a reminder of why your individual actions as a traveler can make a huge difference difference. This was certainly a takeaway for me. Also, why travel can never be truly, quote, sustainable and why we need to redefine what sustainable travel means. As I mentioned, Matt has worked as a tour guide. He has worked in leadership roles at various companies. So I had to ask him what makes a great leader. You're not going to want to miss his advice there. You'll also get a look at the future of tourism, which impacts all of us as individual travelers. Plus, I ask him, what was one of your greatest travel days? One of the greatest travel days you've ever had. I'll share a personal one that I've had in this episode and a practical tip for creating your next great travel day anywhere, even at home. All of that and much more happening right now in this episode. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life 
with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And sometimes you have one of those travel days that you just can't forget. It just sticks with you. I had one yesterday and I didn't even travel. I'm going to share how that happened, what I did, which I can't wait to share with you, and a practical tip for how you can do that for yourself. Now, that is just one small piece of an incredible episode we have for you today. I'm so excited to have Matt Berna on the show, president of North America for Intrepid Travel. I want to let you know that Intrepid Travel reached out because they wanted to work together. They wanted to sponsor a show. And in my head, I was thinking, oh, hell yeah, because (laughs) this is a company I've admired for a long time. I've been wanting to connect with them. Intrepid Travel is a world leader in sustainable experience-rich travel that has been taking travelers to discover the most amazing places in the world for more than 30 years. The company's mission is to create positive change through the joy of travel. Of course, that's one of the big themes of this show. And they offer over a thousand trips on every continent designed to allow you to truly experience the local culture. They're also the world's largest B Corporation certified adventure travel company. They're leading the charge by continually working to improve the travel and the tourism industry. You'll hear what that's all about today. So I thought the best way to collaborate with them was to create a value-driven episode for you to have somebody on their leadership team come on the show, give you an inside look at the future of tourism, some of the trends, but also put together this uh, list of solo travel countries and give you some advice on getting into the travel industry and all the other stuff we talk about today. I really wanted an industry professional and more than that, I wanted somebody who could bring to their conversation their own travel experience. So Matt Berna fit the bill perfectly as president of North America for Intrepid Travel. He's bringing his insights from the professional side of tourism, but also his own travel experience, of course, his insights from working in the travel industry for coming on two decades now, his experience working as a tour guide all over the world, perspectives from living overseas for 15 years. You get the idea. The guy's been around and he's got a lot to share. And I love the way this episode came out. And I should mention before we dive into the interview, Intrepid Travel's having a flash sale, a cyber sale from November 21st through December 2nd, of this year, 2022, they are offering their small group tours for up to 25% off. And you can find those over at intrepidtravel.com, which we'll link to in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's slip and slide into this interview with Matt. Stick around on the back end. Of course, I'll leave you with a quote. I'll leave you with that practical tip and some thoughts around the interview on the back end. Enjoy my chat with Matt, and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can't hear you. Sorry, it was me. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the professional podcaster was muted. <laughs> you had me down on myself there. Like, hold on. <laughs> How you doing, man? Yeah, good. Looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. You're uh, you're kind of fresh off a plane, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I've been traveling quite a bit, so um, I was hoping my voice would be with me today. It's it's, it's pretty good. It was worse yesterday. It's like, oh damn, but um, I'm good. Cool, cool. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you 
are almost always fresh off a plane or maybe not. I, I don't know. <laughs> Working in travel. Lately, I am. I am. Uh, it's, it's been incredible. So many events and, and get togethers and meetings. Everybody's just trying to get back together face to face again. Right. So it's, it's yeah. double time. I think we're in terms of my workload and scheduling back pre pandemic days. Absolutely. In terms of travel. So it's yeah. But yeah, everybody keeps yourself, trying to, yeah. put it behind them, but it keeps still coming up a little bit. I'm mean, even on your guys' website, intrepidtravel.com. It says travel is back for good. For good. I like the <laughs> same words. It, you know, we, we debated using that in the U.S. because it never really stopped for us in the U.S. Yeah. People just kept yeah. traveling. I could tell some funny stories, but we had customers that would call in and they didn't realize half the countries we were going to were even shut. You know, like, why can't right. we go to Thailand? Whatever. Well, that's what you guys do. Yeah. You make it happen. Well, I'm, I've been waiting to say this for a while. Matt Berna, officially welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. It's fantastic to be here. Really looking forward to this. President uh, North America and Intrepid Travel, we've got a load to cover today. And I guess I wanted to hear about your experience in Boulder, Colorado, because I used to live there. And, you know, I traveled all over. And when I picked a place to live after being nomadic for 10 years, I chose Boulder, Colorado. And you went to college at University of Colorado in Boulder, correct? I did. Unless somebody broke in, hacked your LinkedIn account. <laughs> I'd love to talk about it. It was pretty life-changing for me because I grew up in New Hampshire and fell in love with the outdoors just growing up in New Hampshire. But getting to Colorado and Boulder particularly opened my eyes up in so many different ways. I mean, first in terms of outdoors, so close to the Rockies, but then the desert southwest, which absolutely I just spent every weekend I could discovering the, the desert. But it was, so I'm, I think I'm a generation or so ahead of you, Jason, but I was there uh, late 80s, early 90s. And so like the first year on campus, we were going through apartheid protests. Uh, we had uh, the hall I was living in, the hall of residence, the first year had protests from the Cheyenne Arapaho, which, which rightly uh, reclaimed name of the hall. Um, so it was, for me, you know, a lot of reconciliation, outdoors, discovering myself. And so it's, it's so much, you know, to take in. So I was blessed to be there during that time. And it it's definitely catapulted my kind of my my life and career to where it is today. Yeah, it's you can't live in a place like that and not I would say I mean even if you don't consider yourself an outdoorsy person or something like that, you go to some of these unique spots and you can't help but kind of be drawn in by the nature or the activities or at least you know being exposed to it. I think there's a certain I don't know well, of course, I think there's something special about Boulder because I had some magical years there too. It's changed it, a lot. It has. It's gotten much busier. I think from Boulder up to was it Longmont is just one big suburb now, so it has changed. So I think I was fortunate in that sense. Of course, I was pre mobile phones and internet, so it was different for that reason as well. Yeah. Did you stick around Colorado for a while after you graduated, or what, what did you do? So yeah, continue the story because of the love of the outdoors. I instantly, you know, sought my next kind of role in the outdoors. And after a short stint of bungee jumping, which is a whole different story, I basically bought an air balloon and we did jumps right there in Boulder, a company called Vertical Addictions. Living in Boulder, to your point, there's also not just the love of the outdoors, but a certain addiction to adrenaline. And a lot of our friends would you know, ask, like, have you had your adrenaline today? So you'd go hiking in the flat irons and getting out in mountain bikes. So that was a natural progression, of course, to get into bungee jumping. But from there, that was pretty short-lived fortunately. And uh, I discovered a job as a trekking guide. So focusing small group tours around the national parks, 
um, with the company. And that was 1993, so I'm showing my age now. But that was where I, again, discovered this industry and that you can make a career in travel and tourism. And like myself and decades of group leaders, uh, just can't believe there's a job where you get paid to travel around doing what you love. So <laughs> fantastic, right? That's awesome. I am going to get your advice on working in the travel industry because I think there might be some people listening that are just like, hmm, their ears just perked up. Like, I could wait a minute. Yeah, I could get paid to travel. That's cool. I'm pretty sure, I, I don't think I've said this on the podcast, but I remember applying to be a guide at some point to Intrepid Travel because you guys have always been a leader in this space for a variety of reasons that we'll get into. Before we kind of dive into all that, I wanted to ask you about your time at another company, Trek America, because I was a guide at SunTrek. Do you remember SunTrek? There we go. Yeah. Wow, so they were like, they were like the same, you know, they were same, same, but different. It's really funny. Set. So yes, I was a Trek America, uh, which uh, for, for quite a long time, almost 17 years, uh, which also brought me to the UK real quickly um, as a side story. So if you, if you hear a bit of a twinge in my accent, I was based working for Trek America for 15 years in the UK. That's when I first met the guys at Intrepid. Long story short, Intrepid uh, really wanted to get into North America and have its own operations. So as a business, uh, I, I kind of led that that acquisition. Uh, Intrepid purchased SunTrek in 2008. Oh, really? Okay. Because yeah, I know it um, just disappeared off of the face. So I didn't know where it, it No, it didn't. So it stayed it just uh, morphed and adapted. Uh, yeah, very much doing the same kind of concept, which is small groups. Really, again, the same style that the Intrepid really produces today was that immersive. I mean, you're taking people into local restaurants and bars, you teach them how to play pool two-step dancing, right? All those kind of things that particularly international travelers just they've seen on TV and they want to learn about. And we had the freedom as tour guides to pretty much each day choose what we wanted to do. It's always the highlights, right? Hiking the Grand Canyon. But that night it was up to us. We'd take them bowling, take them hot springs, right? We could kind of, you know, adapt the trip. So um, it's unfortunate. So you didn't manage to get into the business. <laughs> well, because I spent a summer guiding with SunTrek. That's another story. But yeah, there was a seasoned guide that would he was giving us all these like little secrets. He's like, okay, when you're at the Grand Canyon and the sun's setting, you got to go to this town. I think it was Hava. I can't remember the name of it. And you have to go pick up pizzas for your group, and then show up and show up with the pizzas, and then everybody, you know. And it's just you're right. I mean, the tour guiding thing is it's such an. There's so many facets to it. I, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about. Sounds like you were working as a tour guide for a variety of different companies. Yes. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to hear a bit more about your, your tour guiding experience and kind of like what you learned from that. And yeah, just give people like a behind the, behind the curtains look at it. <laughs> yeah. And at some point, I'll have to hear why you didn't continue. But as you probably know, was as you would know, it's, it's an incredibly uh, enriching and, and rewarding role being a group leader for a lot of reasons that I, I get into. But it's also extremely uh, demanding, right? In terms of the energy you have to bring every day. And the groups will follow the leader's energy levels, right? We always teach leaders that they're going to mimic your every step, whether it's waking up in a good mood, the kind of music you listen to and how you behave each day to picking up trash on the side of the trail, right? They're going to follow you. So you have to bring that energy every day. And customers can be demanding. You know, back, I think it's even more challenging nowadays because you're people worried about Wi-Fi connections and there's a lot more information about the trip. Certainly back in my years, early 90s, uh, customers would show up and just expect a qualified leader to take them to the best places around the States, right? And, and that's the same around the world. 
so a lot more freedom in the day to day, right? And less less kind of itineraries and digital kind of um, updates. So what what I think is the most incredible part, and, and the leaders are the essence to any kind of group travel. They're the ones that really make make or break the trip. That's why we put so much pride, I guess, in our in our leaders and so much time. And we're just we're just super happy to have the people we have. But they're entertainers, right? And they have groups coming from different countries, so you have to like, understand their interests in terms of what they want to see and do, their activity levels, uh, their diets, and sometimes their social uh, situations because sometimes people come on trips and they're looking for something or hiding from something. So you have to take all these kind of clues in and at the same time deliver on an itinerary right, in terms of what they're expecting to do and with all the other influences going on from traffic and weather conditions and festivals, and right? So it's a lot to balance. And, and you would know that it's, it's, again, some really challenging days, but when you see people's faces when I see the Grand Canyon for the first time, right? With that piece of pizza and that reveal or, um, you know, being somewhere they haven't ever been before and just trying some new activity. Uh, it could be something outdoor based, right? Some kind of new food. And it's the same worldwide, right? And it's that you just get so much joy from that. That, that's, that, that is your reward. One of the coolest parts I thought was also seeing, seeing a group gel, a group that started off not knowing each other and being from different parts of the world and just kind of feeling each other out from like the day one sort of, I don't want to call it awkwardness, but just kind of like, hey, we're in this thing together. And, you know, in that case, you impact in a small van and stuff like that. Every group trip's a little different, but to, you know, day even like three, even two, it was like just a real visceral reminder on the day to day of how travel can bring people together, you know? Yeah, it really does. And there's, you know, we're trained, right? Professionals, I guess, in terms of tactics to help the group bond really right and you know i think talking about solo travel when we're at least half your customers coming as as solos but also people come together from different countries so the first thing you do with with intrepid and certainly did in the past was having a welcome evening and that's maybe the first awkward moment because you're coming in and trying to suss out everybody and absolutely rule number one is never judge a book by a cover right that was that was something i always tell the group because your quietest passenger in the back could also be one of the craziest once they got out on the dance or whatever. So you never really wanted to um, kind of try to judge somebody, but you do a lot of things first start the communication, where they're from, their names, interest, and there's other tools. So if we're traveling in a small vehicle, you'd mix groups up, right? So within the vehicle, they'd be sitting next to different people each day. And to your point, within a day or two, start sharing a laugh and sharing a meal and then become very close bonds. And it's particularly in the smaller groups, we're traveling 10 to 12 people. So you do know everybody. For better or for worse, you know, their names, their kind of likes and dislikes. And it's just, it's just a much more, I guess, intimate traveling environment. How was the time living abroad in London? I had quite a bit of time. So I was lucky enough to first live in Oxfordshire. And if anybody's out there has been, it's incredibly beautiful, right? The rolling, kind of rolling hillside and the, the Cotswold stone, the orange stone, the thatched roofs. I can only afford a, very small cottage where you duck your head in, you know, you walk through the front door, you have to duck your head in, lath and plasters hanging off the ceiling and it's a cracked window. But I still absolutely love the experience. And they brought myself over in this case to give an American kind of uh, uh, kind of feel to the company, even though it was British owned. But the one thing, I, there's a couple things I really took away from you living in Britain. Uh, first of all, the pub life, it's not obviously just about the beer, which is fantastic. It's the fact that it's multi-generational and you walk in, it could be a seven-year-old, you know, a group of 16-year-olds who are in there after school. It doesn't matter the age, women, men. And it's just a lot more communicative in terms of sharing stories and 
you know, American can kind of American can be kind of clicky with its bars and, and brew pubs and such. So it really is just a place to go connect and socialize. And then you, like for me, add that to the fact that you can pretty much walk anywhere in Britain, you know, because the old laws, uh, villagers used to work out in the fields and walk back home and through the farms, the farms, farmers have to, by right, keep paths open on a property, right? So you can walk literally everywhere, really well-marked paths. So you can walk from pub to pub or your village to pub. So walking is a national sport in Britain. And I really miss that. I live in Northern California now and it's absolutely beautiful, but of course everybody has fences for deer or for properties or for whatever reason. So it, it's, it's really tough to kind of go and just wander through the fields. So I think it's fantastic. And then if I can just add, because I have to add this, is that the Brits have this incredible sense of communication banter, right? <laughs> they can, how they communicate together and it, it's quite unique. And as you know, the more they get to know you, the more they feel they can take, take the mickey out of you. So um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of banter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I met up with a British friend of mine who's an expat who lives here in Norway where I live. And yeah, I've noticed that each time there's a little bit more ribbing. The ribbing is increasing. Uh, oh, yeah. Is, it's great. I well, and after, yeah, years of friendship, nothing is off the table. So <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be careful. I have some more travel questions. Of course, we're going to get into this list and everything like that. But I guess since we're on the topic of kind of guiding and working in the travel industry, what advice would you give to somebody who's listening who wants to get a job as a tour guide or wants to somehow break into the travel industry and yeah, be able to use that to travel, but also to just to be a part of it, be around it. Like I knew travel was something I just wanted to be around all the time, even if I wasn't traveling. It's just, you know, so how, how do, how do people do that? Firstly, there's this, I said, there's so many different jobs in the industry, but if you want to start with guiding, I think my first advice would be to think about what, you, what your interests are. And so, for example, um, if you're an outdoor enthusiast or a hiking guide, then of course, I'll lead you down a different path. You might be in hospitality, right? Which we work at some kind of resort, eco-resort of some sort. You could be a, a fishing guide, right? A fly fishing guide up in Alaska, right? So there's so many different jobs in the industry, uh, particularly guiding jobs. And from my mind, there's, there's a couple of variations as well. So I was always a big fan of multi-day guiding. So that means with a group, you might go seven, 14 days. In my days, we did trips from three weeks up to six weeks with the same group. And for me, that was the thrill of getting to know the group, the bonding, and just that wide exploration. Um, it makes it difficult to have family and friends and partners and dogs and such, right? So that's that's kind of knocks most people out. Then there are day guides. So you can you can live at home and might do like a city guide, half-day guide. You can do walking tours, foodie tours, bike tours. So that, that's probably the most accessible. But I think where it gets interesting is there's somewhere in between there where you can be based in an area you love dearly. Maybe it's near a national park. And then if you gain some kind of certification, let's say a wolf tracker, for example, you can go out and really you know, have the lifestyle you want living living in, in Montana or Wyoming and then have, doing something you love every day in a group atmosphere. So there's such a wide array of kind of leading um, roles. And then there's also jobs where you, be able, you, you can also join international groups as a guide. So from the U.S. or other countries, you can travel overseas to work in other regions. So it's a really fascinating, I think, career. And again, you learn a lot about people in general, but certainly a lot about yourself because you're out there defining who you are every day, right? There's no one really giving you guidelines on how to, how to perform, but ultimately you, you, you can be whoever you want. What has that experience taught you about yourself, just kind of reflecting on that at this moment in your life? I think the first thing just taught me to really seize, right? Seize the moment, seize, seize love for life, 
Uh, absolutely a love for the outdoors. I just feel completely invigorated when I'm outside. Um, so that was the first thing really embedded within me. And then just that communication and connection with people. I get energy from people, people coming from around the world, bringing their own stories and learning about their backgrounds. Just for me, that's really, again, a reward. And that's for myself and how we generally travel internationally. That's, again, the, the piece that I think is so special is that your connection to the locals and having time to listen to them and their stories and, and just a bit more about how they live. I think that's really fascinating. So the the crux of all that is this: you just want to travel all the time, you want to be outside all the time. So it's tough to keep a day job sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been able to, to do that. And I, I think, you know, just talking about your professional career, it must be a pretty exciting time at Intrepid. I mean, you guys, I, I want everybody to understand kind of how you guys are leading the charge in sustainability and what a B corporation is, because that's, I think, something important for people to know. And by the way, congratulations. I know Afar is a magazine that I read, and you guys were named as a 2022 Travel Vanguard, one of the 10 visionary companies that are changing the way we travel. And this award honors values-oriented leaders making positive changes in the travel industry, uh, quote unquote there. So all of that being said, if you could just give everybody kind of the 101 this is about sharing what you guys are about, and then maybe we can take this into a broader conversation around tourism and why this is important. Yeah, no, thanks for asking, and thanks for mentioning those those words. Super proud, of course, and I guess a business like ours feels like we're always behind the ball anyway, so it's great to get the recognition, but we always feel like we still have so much to do. So we are currently the world's largest B Corp certified adventure travel company. And I mentioned that because we're proud of that work. And I'll, yeah, I'll give you a minute on what that means. But at the same time, we're also wish we weren't the biggest, right? We wish some of these airlines and cruise companies, hoteliers could, could follow suit. So that'd be a real win for us. And part of, part of being a B Corp is try the advocacy and trying to get other people to come on, on, on board with you. And we, over the years, have had so many different accreditations. So you have hotel groups, forest conservation groups, right? There's, there's hundreds around the world. And we belong to 30, 40, 50 alone, I'm sure. But we're looking for something which we could, that would kind of cover all those areas, environmental, social, governments, compliance. And B Corp was really some of the best fit in terms of trying to deliver what we wanted, which is a, a third-party accreditation, but something would drive us and drive the whole business, right, in terms of different parts of the business. So what does that mean being a B Corp for us? First thing we do is we look internally. And I, I should probably mention before anything else, that what makes us unique as well is that when you think of Intrepid, and, and think a lot of tour operators, a lot of times are sales and marketing companies. But in our case, with Intrepid, we manage and own operations all around the world. So if you go to Peru, that team there in Peru, they're Intrepid staff, then guides are Intrepid staff, right? And the office, it's, it's managed by an Intrepid team. So we have a much wider team. So we are truly a like vertically integrated business. And that's important for us because if you're B Corp, you can just register your local business to be B Corp. But for us, it's the supply chain, which is really important. So What's I think really I'm very proud of is that uh, Intrepid, as a business, that's our 40 offices around the world, was fully accredited as B Corp recently. So that means every one of those offices had to go through the same rigor on separate audits. So what we do in Morocco counts in Morocco. It doesn't count in Peru. Right? So we had to go with every office. So that means everything from not just paying minimum wage, for example, but paying the minimum living wage, which is different, of course. right? It's typically much higher. That means the lowest pay you can possibly pay in any business is the minimum living wage. And it might sound obvious to a lot of people, but a lot of tour companies, you know, it's not a rich industry and it's simply cuts a lot of corners. So it's it's that piece. I found it interesting that you can only have a certain gap between your lowest wage and your highest wage in any region. So that means you typically, 
you have to bring people up from the bottom, right? And then think about how you manage the senior managers. A lot has to do with gender equality, having 50% of, of all roles, doesn't matter what level, but the senior roles uh, with the gender balance, uh, diversity in, in how we hire and, and manage and you know paternal rights. I think they're the piece in maybe that's so interesting, but it's the compliance piece, right? So it's paying your local tax regs. Uh, a lot of businesses around the world try to avoid paying tax where they can and being compliant. So the compliance piece is really important in reporting, governance. Um, so it's a wide area, right? It's everything from from how we are carbon practices to how we supply and how we pay our vendors. Um, but it's it's a big piece and it's a pretty rigorous uh, process, which um, I guess for us, the challenge is every three years, it's a it's a new accreditation. So you have to get the status, and yet they you keep they keep you on on your rigor. And anytime we start a new office, or this, this year we've acquired three or four companies, we then have to pull them up to B Corp standards, or else we lose our B Corp status worldwide. So it really does, uh, it, it, you know, it does drive the right behavior. So yeah, we're really proud of that work. Yeah, talk about forced accountability. Huh? That's right. <laughs> Especially when you put it out there and, and you've already got the accreditation. Yeah, accreditation. And you know, it's about forced. Also, transparency. We've always been really transparent business, but it can be really, uh, I guess, relieving. And I know all my years like in sales or in different businesses, and you go to shows and people puff up what they're doing and they puff up their sales numbers, they usually double them you know, and all that, whatever it is. Um, as a B Corp, you publicly produce your company's results, the good and the bad and the ugly. And if you go on the Intrepid Group website, we can maybe share the link later. You'll see an annual report and it'll show how we're doing as a business, you know, profitability, where the growth is, where we've had some challenges. And it'll also show our ratings in terms of B Corp and some of the other initiatives we're doing. So you're trying to be really transparent to share that because you know, ultimately you're trying to make yourself better. And sometimes you need that kind of external perspective or, you know, someone to keep you true to your, to your path. But um, it's also just important to share what we're doing so other people can look for, learn from it. Yeah, it's it can be overwhelming as an individual traveler to, uh, we've talked about this a lot in the show recently as travel has changed so much and we'll get into that a bit, some of the future of tourism, some of the trends you guys are seeing and stuff like that. And we've we got this, your five best countries for solo travel. Okay, yeah, yeah. Too. So a lot to get point. to here. <laughs> but no, this is an important topic because I think this is a huge reason to have you on because you're right in the middle of, you're leading a big travel company that's doing it the right way with the B Corp status and that accountability. And that's coming from that third party accreditation. So you can't, you can't fudge it. You know, it's coming from an outside source. And I imagine as a business, that's not the easy choice to make, right? So now you have all these other businesses in the tour company. If you're listening and say you don't, uh, you haven't traveled with a tour company before, like in Intrepid, but surely, even as an independent traveler, you've gone and taken tours and you, you've worked with tour operators locally, whether it's a walking tour or a food tour or whatever. This is all the tourism industry, right? So like you said, there can be you know greenwashing. There can be all of these different things. And it makes it challenging for the individual traveler to kind of... <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming, right? You want to do the right thing. You have sort of the right intention. I mean, this is why I think systemic change is so critical in the travel industry because on your own, it's just, it's not like you can't do it and you can do the research. You can find out if the elephant sanctuary is, you know, legit and treating their elephants right and everything like that. Yeah. I, you know, that's a whole other podcast yeah. question. Maybe that's a bad right. example, but you get you know, my drift, right? It's, it's overwhelming. So yeah, just, I guess I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts around that. Maybe some advice 
on kind of doing the right thing, yeah, being a better right. traveler. It can certainly be overwhelming. And particularly as, as companies try to, I say greenwash, I mean, everybody's generally, I think, trying to do a better job. But it's, it's kind of easy to go out and cherry pick some of the things you're doing at the moment and, and throw that on your website versus saying, okay, we're already doing that. How do we, how do we improve ourselves from that status? The elephant story, if I can go real quick, I think for me, it's a great foundational story because we sat in a room, 2006 or something like that, seven, and we're trying to discuss whether we should allow riding on elephants. And this, this kind of starts the story of where we're at today in the sense that it was, it was on the front of our brochures, right? Everybody was doing it. It was a super popular activity. It was part of our best-selling trip. But feedback from our customers was coming and saying, it just didn't seem right. We sent some staff on trips like, yeah, it just it's not really fantastic op- you know, experience. So we helped um, uh, fund a study, independent study, go out and research these activities. And it became very clear these elephants were being tortured, right? They're using electrics, knives, stabs to to change their behavior, to break them, basically. They're, they're not, they shouldn't be domesticated animals. And it really is just soul-destroying. And when you go there, I don't know if you've ever been to the sanctuary, it, it is, you know, it's it's traumatic. And... And that made it a lot easier for us to make the decision to ban elephant riding. But even still, we sat in this room saying, okay, are we going to take our best-selling trip, one of our best-selling activities, and just ban it completely? And with that, no, we have to do this. Not in, it's, it's we'll have to look at the commercials separately, but with something we have to do. And we did, and which was fantastic, is that shortly after it started a movement, which was TripAdvisor banned it as an activity on the site. Other providers quickly followed suit. Now, it's a, like I said, it's a whole other podcast. You can't just, these these families and businesses reliant on that travel. So you have to think about how you adapt that and adapt those businesses to conservation projects, like you mentioned, right? Where you can maybe see them in the natural environment. So you want to still take care of those elephants. Um, but you think about the mindset about whether we should do it or not. Now it seems like an obvious decision. To me, it was like flying uh, in the 90s in airplanes and people were smoking in the back of the plane. You know, it just seems incredible that that that, that happened. So that's kind of how we look at our past sometimes. Like we've, we've moved on so far, but we have so much more to do. So Coming carbon offset was part of that piece uh, in 2010. And now here we are, I guess, to get back to your question. If you're, if you're a consumer, everybody's saying they're doing their carbon offsetting and they're, re- they're reducing this, they're, they're, they're looking at their supply chains. How do you decide? I think generally just looking at um, taking time to research, look at some reviews, but I think also just the style of travel uh, and think about the fundamental basis of, of a small group where we're staying at locally owned hotels and restaurants, right? And those local shops are visiting. The basic economics is that our customers' money they spend is staying within the country. So I think that's the best thing you can do is look at how you travel. Um, and again, I'm not here to like downplay any of the major corporates, which are doing some fantastic jobs and their own sustainability plans. But generally, their money, their, their concept is to models to make as much money as possible. And a lot of those funds go back to shareholders back in the central company. So it, it's extracting sometimes from the economy. So I think for us, it's just looking at how you can make an impact locally and how you travel. It doesn't really matter in this case which company is because that model will be replicated with different operators. Um, and look, sorry, and, and just look for, you know, the real kind of like the conservation tags and the sites and take time to call them and ask them those questions. Yeah, I think the elephant sanctuary story you just shared and, and banning it, you saw how organizations... And larger companies like TripAdvisor began to follow suit. Mm-hmm. And what I'm just hearing is the lesson there of, you know, this transcends travel or anything else. If you can take a leadership role in whatever niche or whatever thing you're doing as an individual, 
and put your foot down, I guess, for the things that you believe in, you never know where that domino effect's going to kick off. It could, it could be you. That's a kind of a nice thing to think about. It's just a reminder as individuals, we can make a difference if we, if we stick with our values, you know? Yeah, it, it absolutely supports your, your conviction and gives you that confidence to keep pushing forward. And I think that's really important. And, and, you know, we look up to other, uh, you know, business partners, other B Corps, certainly Patagonia just leads by example in terms of having, having by the highest levels and standards for kind of that transparency and, and their motives. So I think that's um, something we, we aspire to. The industry itself, of course, is very complex, right? In terms of, <laughs> there's a lot of moving pieces. I think a lot of people assume it's a holiday, it's going to be fun. It's going to be, it's a kind of a low tech industry, but there's so many moving parts. So we look at transportation, hoteliers, accommodation, the local guides, food suppliers, right? And all those pieces we try to put together in as most sustainable fashion as we can. So the next piece for us as, as a B Corp is looking at, the, I say the supply chain, that's again, everybody would serve our customers and our serve ourselves. So outside of our own offices, can we use more electrically uh, powered vehicles, which we're looking at? We're, we're going through our entire range of trips to decarbonize the trips as, as much as we possibly can. So if you're looking at a move towards net zero, there's some big steps that have to happen right away. And we're, we're taking those steps in terms of how we build our trips. So more train travel, taking out internal flights, which really weren't necessary, uh, and looking at as we build new trips to make them from right from the right from the start of the concept as sustainable, but certainly as low carbon as we can. So I think beyond everything we do, our climate climate change is our biggest risk as as a society, of course, but also as a business. So it's something we have to address. Is sustainable travel an oxymoron? You know, it, I'm glad you asked that because <laughs> I, dare I say it is. I think the term sustainable. In essence, because I don't think anything, anything's sustainable, right? If everything changes, it has to adapt and hopefully it could be for the better. Or it might have to adapt just to stay the same, I think. That might be oxymoron, but I don't think sustainability in itself. For me, um, it's maybe a definition refers to longer range view, which is it's it'll last, it'll endure, uh, right, beyond the current state. So I think um, I, I, we use sustainable in so many different contexts, don't we, really? Uh, maybe regenerative or, you know, recreative. I know Ishanard from uh, Patagonia, like he said, sustainability, just it's impossible. It doesn't exist. And I think I'd support that. You have to look at your impact and, and you know, you have, you have to accept you have an impact, negative, neutral, or, or hopefully positive. But, and then, you know, how do you, how do you work with that to make it in long-term sustainable as possible? Yeah. I like the long-term approach. It's a, uh... It's always one of those dilemmas you can come back to as a, as someone who's trying to be a conscious traveler, and you can say, "Well, does the travel experience itself do more good, and somehow act as as an additional offset to some of the unsustainable aspects of it?" Because, like you said, nothing is wholly sustainable. I don't think I'd have a travel podcast for nine years if I didn't believe <laughs> that right. travel was generally a force uh, for good and it does good things for the world. And I know not everybody has the privilege to be able to do it. Yeah, it's, it's certainly impacted my life in so many ways. And has, uh, yeah. what is the trip that has most impacted you in your life? Can you think of one trip that was kind of a game changer? I think I've been impacted in different ways in different trips, right? And think in terms of, Culturally, my first time to Japan, I was just really blown away and, and, and probably more so from 
how culture shock turned into a love for culture, right? That was just a real flip for me. Absolutely love Japan. And then on a conservation front, again, lucky enough to say I've been on a trip through Tanzania and places like Ngorogoro Crater, which is just this like uh, Noah's Ark of, 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 you know, of conservation based in this crater with all these different African species that have been kind of trapped in this crater. And I was just, first time for me, felt like I was truly in, in the outdoors, in nature versus maybe some, like there's like a national park or maybe some kind of contrived area, like a zoo or something. So that was really impactful for me to see nature just behaving as it should naturally. So again, different impacts. Um, I, I would suggest in any place I've traveled, maybe like in Southeast Asia, just for me, it's how people survive and generally how they're so enterprising, right? See, see people on the side of the road trying to sell something so minor, but they're out there still trying to make it. And I think just as you travel, seeing the rest of the world, it seems outside the US, there's just so more social, right? They're out, they're just out in the streets. They eat out mostly all the time. A lot of, a lot of cultures don't eat at home at all, right? They're, so they're outside, they're chatting, they're talking, they're interacting, they're shopping daily. And so I think just that kind of interaction that you see when you travel, it's just really impressive. And I think it's um, so much different from the US in terms of how we, how we go on day to day. Hmm. Have you done your fair share of solo traveling? What's your solo travel experience? Uh, you know, it, I started as a solo travel, so uh, I've quite a bit of it. My first trip, going way back, right? This is the, that summer between high school and college. I bought a ticket to Paris, realized it was super expensive, and ended up just staying on beaches in, in Greece, right, by myself and meeting other travelers. So I, I think that really taught me that how empowering it is. And, and truly that you're more open to everything around you, right? Your senses are completely open um, to meeting people, to trying new things, because you have to, because you're just out there exposed. Um, so I think solo travel is a fantastic way to go. And I know the solo travel in terms of being solo, but again, on this trip way back when, I still met fellow travelers on the ferries and the boats and the beaches. So I was never alone in that sense. Uh, and then, of course, solo travel in the sense of joining a group. And I do that quite often as well. So I've um, got quite a bit of that experience. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to get into this list. I should ask you before we get in, because I know you guys do small group tours. And for the independent traveler listening, why should they consider going on a group tour with you guys, perhaps? I think a lot of, I guess, you know, the, the interest in a group travel is that it's scheduled, it's pre-booked and saves time and planning all that. And of course, that is what it is. But ultimately, traveling as a solo traveler in a small group environment, you just have this chance to meet a group of like-minded people. They've chosen the same trip for a reason, right? And you can find out quickly that you have a lot of interest in common. And, you know, a lot of the trip trips, because there are so many different styles of trips, you find even more so you have shared interests. So it could be a cycling trip, right? Or a cycling trip, which combines food, or a cycling trip in India, which combines food. So you've already basically got yourself into a group of like-minded people. I think that's that's really important. Um, and I think it's also really important to note that solo is not single, right? And it's 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 a really big distinction. Solo traveler could certainly be someone who has a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a partner at home, that, but perhaps they have different interests, right? They are not cyclists, for example. They don't want to go to India. Or we find a lot of people just don't have time. They've started a new job and the other, their partner's like, I'm going to travel anyway. So I'm going to join a group. Environment's already not have that group kind of security and camaraderie. Uh, and I think that's what that's probably the intention for most of our solo travelers is, again, they're very social. Uh, they want to be in that group environment and have that those laughs and share those those moments with somebody. So that's, um, I think, a real big distinction. About half of our travelers 
uh, on as an average around the world are solo travelers on our trips. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, the built-in camaraderie and if anybody that anybody that's, I guess, gone on a walking tour or something, even in a city, you kind of know it's nice to connect with people. And I mean, I see has got some incredible trips, man. Like, and it's something like you mentioned, you know, biking and food type thing or whatever. There's just a lot of logistics to plan and it takes a while to do that all on your own on the ground. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of value in, in it, you know, so regardless of, of whether somebody's coming on a trip with you guys or you're traveling solo, I'm just, I want to, I'm excited to hear this list of sure. your top five countries for solo travel because Countries are ever evolving, of course, as is tourism and everything else. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you reveal here because you guys are in the thick of it. So, <laughs> and this is a true reveal. And I'll tell you what that means. I was curious as well. So, you tasked us with the five top trips, and I'm going to play around them to destinations for solo travelers. And I was curious how we're going to how we're going to pull those numbers. Um, but apparently, we have surveys, and we do, of course, customer surveys after every trip. So these are the ratings based on previous travelers' ratings. So these are oh, this is data driven. <laughs> is this data driven? Oh goodness! I see. These are always like super subjective, kind of like, hey, we're going to put this list together, have a little fun. This is like actual, yeah. yeah. I want to sell some scientific Bali. backing behind no. this here. So, but here's where you have to help me, and I guess the audience can help in their own in their own minds, I suppose. I was provided this list, but I wasn't provided why this list in terms of <laughs> we know that out of all our solo travelers, these are the five highest ranked trips. So we, that's good. That's true data. Interesting. So okay. I'll go through them as a list. And maybe I put some notes by why I think this could be the case. And I may be completely off, but let's, let's bear with me here. Can't so, wait. If this is ranked yeah. in order based on the data, can we count down from five to one? I always like to make it very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it's ranked in some particular order, but they're going to be so close. If we want to do it that way, if it adds dr- drama, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> now I got my editor. Drum roll, please. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, so I guess I'm going to go back. I'm going to start with five then and work my way backwards. Um, I was first surprised to see it's maybe not Bali. Bali. And what I, my, I guess my thinking on Bali as a destination and, and the Bali adventure as a trip is it typically tends to um, attract a younger customer. I see younger in fucking twenties and see low thirties, right? Younger than myself, I should say, but a younger traveler. And, um, typically you're going to see a, a pretty high rate of solo travelers on the more youthful trips, the 1829s, right? Cause they're, there are just generally more independent solo travelers. So Bali comes at number five. Again, I was a little bit surprised myself there. Now the next two are, are sort of neck to neck. Um, and I think, I, I think I got a feeling for why. So we have a best of Morocco and a journey in Turkey. I haven't been to Turkey. I just got back from Morocco last week. Um, and I'm name dropping here, but I guess it's part of, part of the perks of being in travel. I can just, you know, just got back from Morocco and what I find, I think I just didn't say they're similar by any means because they're quite different cultures and de- de- destinations. But in, in terms of the very colorful, the very energetic, the locals are super engaged and they're going to come out and approach approach you quite often, right? Uh, I think possibly for solo travelers, they're seen maybe as a little bit intimidating as destinations, right? Whether it's just the culture they're not used to in an area, they it, it's kind of foreign to them. So I'd imagine I would put India up there as well for that kind of that cultural shock. So it's that security uh, I want to I want to be in and be in that common group. And I think this is where group travel, particularly with the local leader, where you get the benefit, 
because there's places we went in Morocco. I mean, we were the guide has been there, you know, I don't know, obviously from Morocco, but we've been in Trepid 15 years and you can meet his family. We played a, a soccer game on a Friday night under lights with his mates and I don't even play soccer. So I was absolutely torn for the next three days. Couldn't walk, but just got his friends playing a soccer game under lights was, was a fantastic experience. And, you know, that was after the, all the normal touristy day stuff, the Medina and going out for Tangine, fantastic, but having that experience uh, with friends. So I think, again, for solo travelers, those kind of destinations and just um, feeling really safe and comfortable. Um, okay, so I just went from five, four, three. Coming at two, we have explored Jordan. So Jordan is a really fascinating country, and it's become incredibly popular in the last couple of years. Um, it's one of our top sellers. So I think part of it is because it's so popular. Um, so you get more numbers. So we're going to have more solo travelers. We also have more numbers, people traveling. Um, traveling in the Middle East is quite interesting as well. And this is where we really ask our customers to kind of pre-read their notes and understand the culture they're going into. So in terms of maybe covering it themselves up, being out in public, um, this is not kind of a laying by the pool destination, right? You're you're going from Amman to the, to Wadi Rum and out to um, Aqaba and such. And so it's, I think, again, it's probably just areas which really suit group travel really well. It, it is it's not as much public transport. It's not the obvious way to get out in an overnight, maybe camel safari by yourself. So I think joining the group gives you all those, those benefits that are the pre-arranged and pre-organized. Um, and I, again, I, I'm a massive Europhile, but I would find Europe much easier to travel independent solo on a solo basis, right? Hop on a train, get a hotel, get a hostel. It's, it's much easier. I think some of these destinations, maybe you can have all this transportation available, just not as easy to research online and such. So um, again, these are my theories, by the way. This is not hasn't yeah. been vetted by our team. I might be, you know, reprimanded when I get back to work. On Monday, but, <laughs> yeah. That's all good. We're here <laughs> to hear your opinion on this. So it's great. Perfect. And Jordan's great because we're, we, 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 I mean, it's such a fascinating destination, but it's one of those places that, we as a tarpa and other tarpas are following suit are trying to do more because it has this classic route, right? And I say that it's like it's the seven day trip that every operator tries to you know emulate. And it's again, it's it's um, you know, from Wadi Rum to Petra to the Dead Sea. It's kind of a tried and tested route. So working with the Jordan Tourism Board to offer alternative itineraries, and they've created a concept called the Meaningful Map. And again, it's going away from those destinations, and it's a lot of that to do with economic distribution. And just really trying to face over tourism and keep people off that beaten path and, and again, immerse with local Jordanians um, and, and, and real Jordanian lifestyle versus those kind of really high volume tourist areas. So explore Jordan's a really fascinating country. If you haven't been, uh, a lot of people combine it with a trip to Egypt as well. So you might do Jordan and Egypt if you're out there. Some people do Jordan and Turkey, which I find is quite an interesting connect, uh, connection too. So number one, and... I, this doesn't surprise me. I would have put this type of trip uh, as there's a clue there for you, Jason. So what, what kind of trips do you think would be the, the probably the most popular solo travelers? I'm going to say types of trips. Oh, I mean, I'd have to say adventure travel type of trips. Some Something a little more rugged, like a hiking, biking type experience, just because it's a bit more to coordinate and gear and all that sort of stuff. Am I right? So you're spot on. Spot all right. On. That's well done. You are a pro. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? So this is Everest Base Camp. Yeah. Okay. And I think you're absolutely right. It's trekking is a natural group experience. People, you know, people come to me and say, oh, I'll never do a group trip. I'm like, okay, well, 
good luck getting to Everest Base Camp, right? You, you can probably get it yourself, but you can have porters. You can have people around you at some point supporting you. So you have that support of the porters. Um, and I think in this case, experts in, in high altitude, you know, sickness and recovery. So Everest Base Camp, again, much more active. Um, I would have thought maybe something like, I guess Inca Trail, something like that as well, where, but that would be very friendly to partners and traveling companions. So Everest Base Camp comes at number one. Yeah. It's also more cost effective to go with a group, right? You can have one guide for 10 people or one guide for one person. <laughs> yeah. And you know, for me, you can, you can hike Nepal by yourself and find tea houses. In this case, we're employing porters, we're providing jobs, economics. And I mentioned uh, health and safety because there are moments when weather comes in or people struggle with uh, altitude. And it's interesting. You never know what's going to be. The fittest person in the group might go down first from my experience, women do better with altitude than men. And so it's just having that support on the ground. And imagine your partner, if you are traveling, a partner has an illness, then you have this responsibility as well. So it's just having that security, I think is really important. And if there are people that, listeners that really say, I'm still not going to travel in a group, that's absolutely fine. And sometimes my advice, or my advice usually I should say, is think about if you're going somewhere, that's, it could be Bali, it could be Thailand, anywhere in the world, have some time in the city by yourself. You can do but you know, walk around town and do some day excursions. But generally, from there, you might do a say a three day hill tribe trek. Enjoy something like that. We with the group again, most likely a group of solo travelers, and you get all that that benefit of going somewhere you probably wouldn't have done yourself, most likely. Yeah. So um, there's times and place for it for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've had so many joyful experiences with groups out on the road. You know, doing things like the hill tribe treks or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, yeah. it's, it's just cool. It's always been one of my. I mean there are a lot of facets to travel and you have the culture you're learning about the culture you're in the locals and everything like that. And then there's the subculture of travelers that you meet. I always, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I always loved talking to other travelers and apparently I loved it so much. I'm still doing it. That's, you're <laughs> so, in the right job. I really you, am. <laughs> you are. It's really hard for me not to ask you questions. I know we can maybe have a different session on it. We could turn the microphone around. It'd be great. No, this is great. I mean, I'm waiting for the Norway excursion. When you come on on the plane to Norway next time, we'll do it in person. There you go. Yeah, that, that could happen. Very likely. Let's well, let's talk about the future of tourism. You mentioned some things along the way, and I think this is. I mean, look, you just gave us a data driven list of solo. Yeah. I mean, yeah. thanks to all everybody that put that together. By the way, yeah, that was no, impressive as well. Awesome. I'm usually just running these lists off a piece of paper on the top of my head. Like, well, here's my top <laughs> what 10. What do I want to anyway. talk about today? <laughs> but the the future of tourism is obviously, you know, it's, it's impacting us all. And, you know, oftentimes I think as travelers, we're not necessarily thinking of travel as a business or an industry, right? We're going out, we're having experiences of doing these things. But there's this... There is this industry element to it, and there, of course, are certain trends that are starting to evolve. I think a lot of good ones, like uh, the pandemic was a hard reset in many ways, even for destinations, just through conversations I've had. It's, it seems like destinations are really rethinking things the way they do things. Everyone's just kind of had to take a pause and 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 reassess in some ways, which is a good thing. I mean, whoever thought the travel industry would have a time to take a pause and reassess. You mentioned the kind of like working with the tourism board of Jordan to develop some of those off the beaten track itineraries that are not the sort of the standard. That's something I I feel pretty strongly about as well. Like kind of these truly, you know, you can say off the beaten track is like a, as a, uh, like a buzzword, or you can actually develop an itinerary that is 
truly not the same one that everybody goes on that comes into the country. And that would help a lot for over-tourism, of course. So I want to hear your thoughts on that and then some of the other uh, sort of future of travel type of trends you're seeing. Well, you've definitely hit the nail on the head about the repause and kind of rebuild. I would I would only suggest that the industry was hit so hard as well that we didn't have as much time and energy. Uh, I say as an industry now, I'm speaking on behalf of the entire industry to to focus. A lot of it was just on survival and survival in our case of of our network, right? Trying to work with those hoteliers and keep the guides engaged. So when travel came back, they knew they had a job to get back to. So a lot of it was a chance to rebuild, and you had to. And you know, looking back, just I, I was having podcasts and seminars on over tourism in March of 2020. And we were heading down the disastrous route of just gridlock places like Venice and Rome. We've seen all the stories. So something had to happen. So yeah, that's certainly one of the benefits. And off the beaten travel as a term, we've, we've been using that in the industry for years. And ultimately, I think that's been a real benefit of, of this change that we're getting back to that kind of product and experience. When we approach building a trip, it's getting off the beaten path. Absolutely. Because people don't want to be around other hordes of other tourists. It's just not the experience they're looking for. And of course, you know, when there's lots of tourists, a lot of times the locals get out of town as well. So now you're not even with locals, you're just with other tourists and it's pretty terrible. I think change we've seen. So fortunately, the industry has taken this approach of building back better. So it looks at, okay, are we using the right suppliers? Do they have, are they using renewable energy, right? Are we buying, are restaurants getting produce from farm to table, right? So there's all those kind of efforts going into place. But I think also trying to, build back not just around those primary destinations is, is a, one of the easiest strategies we can do. So for example, Italy, I think this year was back to pre-pandemic levels for international visitors. So it's already back. So they're trying to promote and we're trying to help with this other regions. So going through Umbria, for example, which is maybe central Italy. So getting off the places that all, we just kind of go to from default from, from what we know of Italy. So think about the less central regions because you're going to find experience where you're having a meal in a small village with a local family next to you versus a whole group tour next to you of, you know, 50 tours. So I think that's, that's for me, the kind of rural approach um, to tourism, but probably more interesting. And what we're, we're, for us particularly more interesting is it's, it's a concept of um, not just like building back better, but building back from scratch. And I'll give you examples. So a lot of these primary tourist destinations had to think about how, how they're going to manage tourism came back think of cancun venice like they had issues and they're thinking how do we manage this better other regions were thinking how do we get some of that tourist dollar and so this is how we can help this concept over tourism by just trying to shed light on new destinations which might not have been on top of that that kind of radar before um, so i'm proud to say we worked with us aids it's an organization economic organization based in the us which helps other countries develop economic practices in this case tourism so we worked with uh, bosnia herzegovina on a project to help them um, build tourism products in the country because most travelers to places uh, like that, particularly Sarajevo, were spending just a day in the city and then traveling onwards possibly like through Croatia and such. So um, how do you go up building these experiences in countries which weren't on top of everybody's kind of travel interest? And then going beyond that, how do you get people out of Sarajevo? So looking at, again, we, we built some excursions with local rafting companies Farmers providing farm and table lunches for those excursions, working local suppliers to provide the transportation. So that build back better is really looking at how do you take tourism dollars and again 
distribute them throughout those those regions, not just as primary kind of tourist tourist traps. Mm. What are some of the other trends you're seeing? Well, I think what I kind of referred to earlier, seeing a lot of customers, particularly coming out of the pandemic with new interests. Uh, I know it's very difficult to purchase a bike here in the States, you know, until recently. So really active holidays, people looking for combining a cultural experience uh, whilst being active. So cycling holidays have really boomed for us um, and particularly hiking based, walking based itineraries. So again, a real push towards more active holidays, certainly getting away from that flop and drop on a beach. It's people to get out and do more. And I, I really align with that as well. The idea of taking a cycle route through little villages and having local lunch with locals, and then of course, putting your miles in and be able to enjoy a cold beer or something at the end of the day is, is a real nice way to travel for me. So active travel, we're also seeing quite a shift in the industry towards um, what we already do, which is high-end sustainable travel. So people might think of what we do. I mentioned some of this homestays and kind of more rustic family-owned properties, but we also have a range of trips called premium adventures. And these are really like beautiful uh, signature properties. And in most cases, still privately owned and very much uh, locally owned um, properties. So we're looking for customers that want that immersion, that real experience on the ground, but aren't ready, maybe ready to tent it or stay in a hostel or stay in a three-star. So it's typically four or five-star properties. And we're that, the program's got 100, 100 different itineraries at the moment. We launched it a couple of years ago, and we're seeing a massive uptake for that interest in that. And I think what we're going to see is the industry is going to start following our suit. So the other players in the market, which have traditionally uh, been those higher operators coming into our space. And, you know, it, it's quite a different you know, experience. If you think, I use this example of the, the kind of traditional, say you're an African safari, beautiful lodge, and they bring the dance crew in to dance in front of you having dinner. That's still a very interesting cultural experience. But on this, our style of travel, intrepid style of travel on a premium trip, you still have that beautiful, small, maybe boutique or signature property. But in the evening, we'll have a Maasai guy come and meet, you know, you and a couple members of the group and take you for a private walk through through the through the land and the park around the, the site. So you're having this personal experience somewhat active but it's more about this tr- true uh, experience right authentic experience in a state kind of show so that's i think as a trend that sustainable high-end uh, type of trips we'll see more and more of that in all parts of the industry from land to cruise uh, for sure and probably the one we're also seeing which is really fortunate i think for for everybody involved as is, is a real focus on indigenous tours tourism uh, in the u.s we talk more to bipoc kind of uh, inspired experiences and these aren't trips they might be specifically focused on a certain uh, region or culture but these are really about introducing some more of those activities into the trips themselves and i say activities again more than a cultural center again which is a fine i don't know they serve a purpose but it's more about the interaction so maybe taking a cooking class right with a female-owned business with has this recipe from their there's you know come down generations of the family so you're having this discovery moment with them you're learning a new skill we work with um, local guys, a lot of places we travel to provide their local perspective, whether it's a historian, maybe uh, an indigenous guy or Native American guide in some of the parks. So just building that into our normal trips as an element is really important because it is a very much, um, you said, privileged industry we're in. It's also been kind of relayed through a very white lens over the last 100 and 200 years. So how do we bring out those local stories and so they can kind of just connect to our customers, but give their chance to tell their story from their perspective. So I think it's really important. So very much building the indigenous tourism piece into everything we do, certainly every itinerary. And you'll see it again, a lot of other operators follow suit. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. 
you mentioned hiking and biking and then going for a beer. That sounds, yeah. you had me at that. There we go. <laughs> pretty unbeatable combination, of course. <laughs> it, it is the best dang beer. It's like you've earned the, it, the right? Post outdoor. And there's something about it. You know, we're traveling overseas, right? That that local beer always tastes so incredible when you're there locally sitting there and the, the sun on your face. And yes. You put a good day it's in. always so. a pilsner. It, it typically right? is, yeah. Right. <laughs> Although, At least in some countries. The world's right? fascination with IPAs is making its way around the world. It's pretty incredible. Finally. <laughs> I'm a big IPA fan. Yes, so. likewise. Well, a couple questions to kind of close this out here. By the way, thanks for your time. And I know you guys are, I mean, at least the time of this recording here, you got a cyber sale going on, I should mention, from November 21st through December 2nd. Uh, you can get up to 25% off. So if you got a travel bucket list going, you got to go to intrepidtravel.com and check it out. Get it while the getting's good. That's still the year. <laughs> it's not hard to spend money on travel. I mean, that's, that, that's always the easiest. You know, I'll struggle to put my credit card in for like a new pair of pants because like mine has both the knees are worn out and they just like, I can't wear them anymore. But, you know, here's my credit card for the... <laughs> it's right. Well, you know, it's... I don't feel right in my my day to day life unless I have at least one or two trips booked in the calendar in the future. Right? It's that having something to look forward to. I think and having it in the in your schedule. So I get it for sure. You have had so many leadership positions, including the current one you have now. I just wanted to hear from you what what makes a great leader. Well, thanks for asking. I wasn't totally prepared for that question. Uh, I think it's a really good question ask i think we're finding and i hopefully it reflects a bit of my style it's um, well first of all it's understanding that everybody in the organization is super critical to the success of that organization so every role every every job responsibility and having respect for everybody in those roles that we're, you're, you have to work as a team to deliver that so as a leader you have to be empathetic you have to listen you have to really just be aware of what's going on around you i think we're finding more and more so uh talk about being vulnerable, right? That we're in a position for a reason, but as much as you can be vulnerable and communicate and allow your staff to tell you how they're feeling and you know what's working, what's not working for them, I think is really important. Um, and particularly in the world we're in now, it, it's much easier to get a job virtually, particularly with all these remote-based jobs. So as a business, we have to truly, really connect and make sure we're engaged with our staff because if we're not, uh, they can certainly find other opportunities elsewhere. So Leader nowadays has changed quite a bit. You're not as visible. You're not there as present in person. Uh, I know in my case, because I work from home, a lot of my staff don't see me much at all. So it's a changed leadership style. You have to, again, share what you're doing at times, but also make sure, if anything, just listening to what they're doing and just make sure you're enabling them to, to, to do their jobs, um, that they're happy and healthy doing their jobs. So it's, yeah, it's changed leadership style quite a bit. This last question will be guaranteed to leave you in a good mood. For the okay. rest of the day. Great. I need that. <laughs> I don't need that. I'm in a good mood now. So I've enjoyed this, Jason. So I'm in a fantastic mood. I'm not sure what you're doing after this. I see some <laughs> beautiful northern California trees outside. What are you doing? What are you up to today? This is not the question, by the way. Okay. It's early <laughs> today, so I still have some calls to get through. Uh, I'm doing a bit of remodeling. Actually, one of my goals the next couple months is to um, convert an outside shed into a beautiful office with lots of windows and glass and have a uh, the Shawfis concept. So I'm very much oh, looking nice. forward to that using my hands and 
very basic building skills and a lot of YouTube videos to, to get it done. <laughs> this is really resonating with me, Matt, because just yesterday I fixed up my office here in the loft, the loftus, yeah. I call it. Loftus. And it was literally, I put it on my calendar. I'm like, if I don't put this on my calendar, I'm never yeah. going to do this. And the thing, working with your hands, you know, put the put a shelf up. It wasn't anything hard, but you know, put some frames of pictures, put them up, some pictures my kids drew, and put some uh, Nepalese prayer flags up that yeah, I bought forever ago uh, from that trip. And just like, yeah, so I got this vibe. And coming up to record with you, it just felt good. This is the first podcast I've recorded since hey, I did it. You I'm can't honored. see it because the camera is the other way. But um, so yeah, man, I, it's well worth your time. It's uh, it's it's, it's something satisfying about it, right? Yes. And to your point, I book it in the calendar. Saturday, I got to get this done. Sunday, this done and keep the schedule. But I look forward to it. So exactly. I'll show you a picture someday when it's complete. Right on. So the question I was going to ask you is, can you just describe or take us back to one of the greatest travel days you've ever had? It doesn't have to be the greatest because that's unfair. You know, it's a lot to think about. But just a day where you were just like, this is so magical. This is what travel's all about or this is just so fulfilling in some way i guess again i'm fortunate enough to have to struggle to find the one um doesn't have to be the one but what's the first one that kind of popped into your head yeah it's funny the first one came to my mind actually was uh, i've done again a lot of trips in the outdoors so i have a lot of those kind of surreal natural moments and i could talk about those of course a lot in a group environment we um i was traveling in northern uh, northern thailand and this particular group the two older gentlemen, they were young 70s Scottish and had the most incredible sense of humor. And and just, just of course, their Scottish accent helps. We rented bikes with a local guide and went out into the village countryside. We found this, we biked quite like three, four hours. It was pretty warm. Found this little restaurant, sat there and started having beers. And I, I literally couldn't stop laughing the whole afternoon at some of the jokes these guys were saying. They weren't even jokes, just the way they communicated. And that's when I felt I'm truly, really enjoying traveling. So I'm with a local guide really two other fellow travelers I never would have met without going on this trip. And this is just a plug for Intrepid, but it really came to my mind as the first instance and just enjoying myself where I was at and having, a, you know, having that experience. So um, just one of the many, fortunately for me. Amazing. Laughter, key ingredient in, in really those, is. those great days, right? Fantastic. Well, we mentioned the flash sale or the cyber sale. Anything else you want to kind of leave us with here? Of course, IntrepidTravel.com. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes, but... Um, yeah, feel free. I know you guys, we didn't even discuss the Intrepid Foundation. You guys have raised more than $11 million for more than 130 charities around the world. I mean, you guys are doing a lot of awesome stuff. So yeah, I mean, just, yeah. Anything else you want to share here? Have yeah. It? Well, yeah. Thanks. And the sale is important for us, but that's only obviously, you know, part of our tactics. Uh, we have an Intrepid journal. It's basically our online, uh, you know, I think it's monthly at this point, maybe every two weeks. And um, the stories are fantastic. These aren't sales stories. These are stories of the work we're doing, They're customer stories, destinational information. And if you read a couple of those and it doesn't whet your appetite, then I'm not sure what will. But it's really well, I think, um, conceived and written. And it's just inspiring some of the stories to read. So check out the Intrepid Journal would be my suggestion. And then the sales secondary. Right on. Cool. Well, thank you so very much for your time. Good luck with your your shed rehab thing and hope to do this again some other time soon. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Jason. Really appreciate your time. Nice to meet take, you. Take care. You too. All right. Thanks. For 
you have it. Thank you once again to Matt Berna from Intrepid Travel for stopping by the show and taking his time to share his advice, his experience with us. And thank you so very much, you. Yes, you, for listening. I was wondering, what is one of the greatest travel days you've ever had? You heard me finish up the interview with that. Please, if you have a moment, leave me a message. I always leave a voicemail, a link to my voicemail box, I should say, in all the show notes. Just click on that and leave me a message. No email required or anything. You have 90 seconds or less, and you can just answer that question. What was one of the greatest travel days you've ever had and why? Man, I would love to get some answers from this community. So suck it up if you've been thinking about leaving me a voicemail. (laughs) Take a moment after this, and please do that, and we can share some answers from the community. I'd really love to share those segments over the coming weeks so people can hear from other listeners in the community what some of the greatest travel days they've ever had. And I'll kick it off here with a personal one. And of course, I'll follow this up with a practical tip because I did have an incredible quote-unquote travel day yesterday, even though I was at home in Oslo, Norway. And for those of you that don't live overseas or whatever, I know that might sound exotic being overseas. Well, you're already sort of traveling, but this is my home and I'm living my daily life here just like everybody else. And I get caught in those routines and things go by the wayside and there's certain experiences I've been wanting to have that I put off and this is one of them and I didn't put it off any longer and I had an epic travel day. Again, quote unquote travel day. It was awesome. I'll get to that in a second. First, let me explain the travel day that came up into my head as I was reflecting on this question. I was like, how should I answer this at the end of the show? Uh, You heard Matt, he was kind of stumped for a second and I was as well, and I kind of did the same thing to myself that I did to him as I got into this show. I was like, well, how would I answer this question? What was my first gut thing? The visual that came to mind was, this kind of brings things full circle, my first solo trip in Europe. And I remember one day hiking along the villages of Cinque Terre in Italy. This is the summer of 99, I believe. And I had been about two weeks into my first solo travel adventure. I remember I met a group of guys from Portland, Oregon. At that point, I'd done a few hostels. I'd met people all over the world, and I was really in this groove of solo travel. And I just remember hiking along the Cinque Terre. I might have slept outside either the night before, just along the trail, even though I had a place to stay, one of those kind of stay up all night have some wine, look at the moon glittering off the Mediterranean. (laughs) It's magical nights. And hiking and just being so grateful and so buzzed up in my body and just thinking how incredible this experience has been. And so in the moment and just knowing I was on some kind of path that was really aligned with who I was and my soul's calling in some ways. Travel felt so right to me. And I had already done my first nationwide promotional event tour where I traveled around the U.S., saved money for this trip. But this was the first solo trip I had ever taken and the first time really out of the country outside of going to Cancun for spring break in high school. (laughs) You can imagine what that was like. Not much of a cultural experience the way I tackled it at that time. So anyway... It was just so memorable because not only was the hike 
incredibly gorgeous. The going to village to village and the nature and, and looking at the sea and getting to stop and kind of eat gelato along the way. And the whole day was magical. But being surrounded by new friends, really vibing on that solo travel experience and just being in that moment so powerfully. And I can't explain it other than my body was just radiating joy. Magical. And that really stood out to me as one of my favorite travel days, one of my greatest travel days of all time. Again, what is yours? Please answer that question. Don't put too much pressure on it. It doesn't have to be the greatest ever. Just pick one and share in a voicemail or an email. would love to hear from you. Now, yesterday, I did something that I've been putting off. And who got this back on my radar? It was none other than Timmy, if you're listening, a listener of this show, who came through town, we met up for a meal, and he said, man, Jason, I've been going to these saunas every day. I'm loving it. And I knew about the saunas. There are floating saunas now in the Oslo Fjord. It's really taken off over the last few years. And yesterday, I met up with my buddy Curtis, and we decided to hit some of these saunas up. And I literally had it on my calendar, sauna hopping. How fun is that, sauna hopping? We got a beautiful day in the late fall. There was even some sun here. (laughs) And it was such a cool juxtaposition to go from 100 degrees Celsius heat in a sauna and jumping into a 7 degree ocean in the Oslo Fjord. Your body's buzzing, you're tingling all over. And you're with a group of people in these shared saunas. This one area we went is part of the Oslo Badestu Förening, which is the basically the sauna association. It's a nonprofit. And uh, that was the first sauna we hit up. And it was almost a little village of floating saunas. You went out on this dock and they had multiple floating saunas, this funky little office that was kind of like a shanty style. It had the tin roof and everything. It was just so cool. Such a cool sort of bohemian Scandinavian vibe. Cool people hanging out there. Uh, Probably some tourists, mostly locals. Great mix of people. And just... A blast. Then we got on some city bikes. We rode over to another sauna. We hit that up, did some more swimming, and then had lunch at a small place I'd never been before where they served some really good. I had dal with rice. Anyway, it was a fantastic day. Felt like a great travel day. And so my practical tip for you is, no matter where we live, even if you're in some small town somewhere, There's probably a bigger city or some kind of bigger attraction nearby that you've been putting off seeing because life is busy. And then you travel, you might have been all over the world, but you're still missing X, Y, or Z thing that's within a couple hours of your home. Let me suggest to you, dare I suggest, doing what Matt said at the top of the show. This is bringing it full circle. You know, he's saying, uh, as we started the show, the quote of, Having a couple trips on your calendar, some things to look forward to. Maybe we need some other things to look forward to in just our weekly lives at home or wherever we live. So put it on your calendar. I put sauna hopping on my calendar, blocked out the time. Even if you got to take a day off from work, whatever, put it on the calendar and go do the thing and have a freaking awesome day 
Don't feel bad about the things you're not getting done. Life is short. Don't don't even think about anything, but just being in the moment and enjoying that day. In fact, when we went to the other sauna, we met a guy from England, super nice guy, and we were chatting with him. So I even got a little bit of like that travel vibe of meeting another traveler that was visiting. It was really cool. Highly recommend it. So find a thing that sounds super cool to you, super fun, that you've been putting off that's somewhat nearby. If you're not home, if you're traveling and listening to this, do this the next time you're home. Or, of course, do it wherever you're at, if you'd like. (laughs) And put it on your calendar and make that happen. Make it happen. You won't regret it. And it's cool to be able to sketch out an incredible travel day here at home and really get that feeling. So anyway practical tip for you. Put it on the calendar. Let me know what you do and enjoy. I'll leave you with that. And this quote I have here from Swami Vivekananda, who said, the greatest sin is to think yourself weak. End quote. Love that. Brings me back to one part of the interview where we talked about the elephant sanctuaries and you know, how much your individual choices matter. And within the context of a lot of these episodes we've been putting out about some of the trends in the future of tourism and sustainability and being a conscious traveler, being better travelers, doing the best we can. We have to remember that our individual choices do matter. And remember, we have power. We have power. So that's why I wanted to finish with this quote. The greatest sin is to think yourself weak. Thank you so much for listening. And... I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.